1: So I hope you'll check out the book. Uh, we're now working on one about cancer. But this is going to be our goal is uh, three times a year to come out with these masterclass books that I think will inspire new scientific research. And I hope you'll check it out. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. Today, I'm interviewing a previous guest, uh, Stephen N. Firing. He's a professor of microbiology and immunology, also a professor of genetics, all at Dartmouth College. Uh, we had a great conversation last time, and I wanted him to be a part of the cancer book that we're putting together. So today, that's what it's going to be about. So Steve, welcome back. Thank you.
2: Great to be back talking to you, Richard.
1: From what I've read and looked at, it seems to be, maybe not a consensus, but you know, a large school of thought is that cancer starts starts from a single cell and it comes from, you know, a random mutation of a cell. What's your perception on how it starts? How do you think it first happens and why? I
2: think that mutations are required. They may not be sufficient. I think that there also needs to be some sort of irritation. Or stimulation. If you go back to some of the early studies, they used uh, a mutagen and then they would put something called PMA on that it's sort of a, a stimulant that turns on a bunch of pathways and they would get cancers more frequently in, in, in animal models. So I think that chronic irritation or inflammation seems to accelerate it, but certainly it does require specific genetic changes.
1: Well, what do you think the order of change is? Do you think that first perhaps it's um, continual adaptation to stress? You know, a group of cells continually tries to adapt maybe to metabolic stress or otherwise. Epigenetic changes probably occur and pile up. At what point do you think the cancer starts? And what what do you think starts it? What do you think the first thing that happens that you know turns a cell or a population of cells into cancer?
2: Well, as you're as you're probably aware, all cancers seem to go through stages. You get some sort of aberrant proliferation. There's something that's not being properly regulated. It may exacerbate, or it may stop there, and um, then you get into things like it becomes invasive, right? And then finally, not only is it invasive, it becomes metastatic for many solid cancers. That's the that's the really dangerous thing, and so often people will be diagnosed with something that's benign, right? And it's like, well, we're just going to take this off. And then the pathologist looks at it and says, yeah, it's benign. It's nothing to really be concerned about. It's gone now. So I think that most people think that cancer doesn't go from nothing to metastatic. It goes through a series of changes and eventually goes from nothing, maybe aberrant proliferation, maybe stress, chronic stress, the chronic inflammation, development, lo- loss of control of uh, contact inhibition, maybe starting to express telomerase so that now there's no limit on the number of divisions that those cells can go through, maybe resisting an immune response that's, that's starting against the cancer and eventually getting to the point where it's becoming invasive and eventually metastatic. But what I'm sort of reiterating it is simply sort of... Of the pathologist's view of what they see, right? So somebody goes to the pathologist, let's say there's a breast lump, and they take a biopsy, and they look at it, and they say, well, it's carcinoma in situ, which means that it's it's potentially a problem. We have to take it out, but so far, it hasn't progressed to the stage where it could have been metastatic yet, right? So I think most cancer biologists see this idea of a continuum from relatively harmless changes that could be Starting with genetic, maybe there's some epigenetic, maybe there's some chronic stress or inflammation, and then it kind of evolves over time, which is another reason why it's a relatively slow disease. Most people don't think of it as a real fast disease. So. Um, okay.
1: what well, what is your guess on the order of ability acquisition? You think the first thing is that they're allowed to proliferate out of control, or do you think that it's evading the immune system? Like what would you guess would be the order of again acquisition of ability
2: yeah i think my guess is that the first thing is probably um begins to proliferate despite the normal signals that tell it you shouldn't be proliferating so it's ignoring the regulatory signal and that's going to potentially develop a a well-behaved benign tumor i think that that will begin to accumulate mutations and epigenetic changes that make it more unusual, make it more recognizable potentially by the immune system, at which point it may begin to develop resistance mechanisms against the immune system. Although if we get into that, I have some what I think are interesting ideas about the development of immune suppression, which is sort of a survival mechanism in cancer. And one of the things that I think often happens is that it becomes genetically more unstable. So more changes are cur- occurring. A lot of them are probably going to kill the cells in which they occur, but it's driving a faster sort of evolution. And I think that the classic example, which maybe is something you should think about for your book, because it's it's what seems to happen in colorectal cancer. Where unlike, oh, what is that? Yeah. Unlike most cancers, colorectal cancer seems to have very clearly defined genetic or epigenetic changes at each stage so if you go in and you look at polyp then you will see certain pretty much standard changes that you will see in most colorectal polyp further changes will occur to let's say it's an invasive polyp. I don't know the stages of colorectal cancer well, it's not my area, but I know that this is this is like a very clear and well-developed progression of genetic and epigenetic changes, gene expression changes that is associated with each stage of colorectal cancer. It has not turned out to be the, the paradigm for other cancer. So there's nothing like it for, let's say, breast cancer or melanoma that, oh, it goes through these stages and here's the genetic changes. And at each one of these changes, there's going to be a very limited number of genetic changes. But for colorectal cancer, it seems like that's what's happening.
1: What's, um, if, if you looked at neoplasms versus, you know, or essentially benign versus cancerous tumors, do you know of anyone that's done a study side by side of for a given cancer you know, like colorectal, non-cancerous polyps versus cancerous ones to look for the differences? And if so, what's been observed?
2: Uh, you know, I think that's been done probably a fair amount for different cancers, uh, Richard. And I think that for, for most cancers, you will see that the the more advanced it is, the more disrupted the genome is. Maybe it's become aneuploid. Maybe it's got a lot more mutations. Maybe the DNA repair mechanisms are not functioning well. That's one of the steps that happens in a lot of colorectal cancer development is you lose certain proteins that are important for DNA repair. So now you're much more mutation prone, which as I said can can cause death of some cells. In a minority of cells, it's going to cause the mutations that are going to drive the tumor. I think that the, those sorts of studies have been done and that probably it's not hard to find what are the sorts of changes associated, let's say back to breast, with ductal carcinoma in situ versus adenocarcinoma, right? There's a clear transition. The pathologist can see it. There's genetic markers of it. And then there's probably a lot of less well-characterized but documented things things that occur um, between the two stages.
1: Yeah, the reason I ask is that that would be a closer proxy to cancer. You know, a neoplasm that's not cancerous has some of the hallmarks of, you know, cancerous growth, but not all of them. But it's closer than, I would guess, normal surrounding tissue. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show.
2: Yeah. And like, I, I think the first thing that happens is probably loss of growth suppression, loss of suppression of the cell cycle. So, you know, well-behaved tissues don't enter the cell cycle unless there's some sort of a signal that tells them we need more of you. Maybe there's been a wound, for example, or um, if it's if it's blood cells, that's the, there's turnover going on all the time. But in general, for adult tissues, there's not a lot of growth. Now, well, reps- what
1: would you say is is the incidence Of neoplasm versus, uh, you know, cancerous tumor for any given tissue type. Is I guess cancerous tumor always a subset of neoplasm growth? And you know, what are the ratios would you guess for various tissues?
2: I think that probably there's more there's more neoplasms, there's more benign tumors than there is cancerous one. But that's a little bit hard to know because what we don't know is what's been removed by the immune system already before we ever see it. Right? Do you see what I'm saying? That's that that's sort of like the, the data that we don't get, right? Is that well, yeah
1: just like with cancer i mean uh my guess and i'm sure everyone's guess is that you know everyone says oh you have small cancers in you all the time so i would guess the the times or the number of times that a small cancerous mass arises far as far exceeds the quote-unquote successful ones that grow to be you know significant tumors and then same thing probably with neoplasms but yeah i guess i guess proliferative growth or unchecked growth probably is like one of the main first things that happen because it manifests itself in different ways not always cancer
2: you know and it's also a classic in vitro assay for a genetic change that is is driving cancer is the ability to grow without contact inhibition, right? So in normal cells, if you put most normal cells that stick to plastic onto a dish, they will grow until they cover the dish and then they will stop. But if you make certain genetic changes, they'll start to pile up into small foci, we would call it. And it's sort of a classic in vitro study of cancer genetic, which is basically saying that that's, that's an early step, right? You're losing what we call contact inhibition, right? Cells get signals from their neighbors, there's no room to grow anymore, so stop, right? And we call it contact inhibition. And that's one of the things that gets lost pretty early. And the other one I think that has to be lost pretty early is you have to express telomerase or else the ends of the chromosomes become unstable and the cell is likely to die, right? So telomerase is, is the immortality gene. It's what enables, you can take, you can take normal primary cells, let's say a normal fibroblast, that's the common cell that people do it, and force expression of telomerase. So most cells are not expressing telomerase, which is the enzyme that enables replication of the ends of the chromosome if you force that expression then unlike a normal fibroblast where you can keep passaging it at some point it'll just stop and people call it a like a um a growth crisis or a division crisis it'll just stop it just stops and it won't divide they won't divide anymore the reason yeah, i thought there was,
1: there was like a hay flick limit for cells
2: that's it. and it's that's different, it. For different cells right That's it that's the hayflick limit that's it and it's caused by the fact that their telomeres are now too short and they stop dividing if you express telomerase they will keep dividing indefinitely that is the hayflick limit which i think is quite fascinating
1: Yeah no it's interesting i'm thinking about a given tissue the cell division would come from the differentiated you know cells of a particular tissue but what percentage comes from stem cells that you know come in and then differentiate into that end cell type and then divide there
2: yeah i think it's going to vary between between the tissues and then some tissues like you know colorectal cancer there's a lot of stem cells because there's a lot of turnover gut cells right they're constantly dying and being turned over i don't know if you know if you've ever seen the diagrams about the bottom of the crypt of the stem cells and they're dividing and then the the more differentiated cells are moving up the crypt
0: if you like this podcast Please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes.
2: Till they get to the end where they basically get shed and they die. So that's a tissue where there's probably a lot of stem cell activity there may be a fair amount of stem cell activity and I don't know much about it in breast cancer because breasts expand and they they grow and then they shrink based on you know pregnancy based on um, the menstrual cycle they go through changes they're responding to hormones so there's a lot of sort of growth and then death of breast cells whereas other cells like brain cells glial cells in the brain they're really probably not a whole lot of division that's going on, there are neural stem cells. And most people think that the the cancers of the brain are coming actually from the neural stem cell, not from the differentiated cell. So I think this is an active area. 15 or 20 years ago, the whole idea of that the the cancers were being driven by, not by the majority of cells you see, but by a minority of cells, which are more stem-like. That was quite new, but now it's pretty well established for many cancers that you really, you really, the real problem is the stem cells, not the more differentiated cells that are often making up most of the cancer itself.
1: Mm, Okay. Do you think that cancer becomes essentially its own life form where it? Has its own, you know, goals and homeostatic drive and self-preservation mechanism, and, and if so, at what point does it happen? At a hundred cancer cells, at a thousand, a million, a billion? What's your thoughts?
2: That's an interesting idea, Richard. It's almost a philosophical idea, but I have looked at cancer and thought of it in terms of it's a parasite, right? It's feeding off the host to the detriment of the host, and it will potentially harm the host, but it's it's got its own sort of goal, if you might say. I don't want to make it anthropomorphic, but its programming is such that it is going to divide, and it's going to ignore the signals that tell it don't divide, and it's going to keep taking resources that will eventually degrade the host.
1: At what point do you think there is, I guess another way to put it would be, at what point do you think there is emergent behavior you know, whereby a cancer cell will act in concert with the rest of the body. And at what point when there's quote unquote enough of them that their cellular desires for metabolites or whatever it may be you know for blood vessels etc now takes over and it acts as one unit it act, you know when does the tumor act as a coordinated whole instead of just a bunch of cells that are in the same vicinity
2: yeah that's a really interesting idea and one of the things that that i think is an important idea that doesn't get a lot of consideration or thought is the idea that much of what the cancer cells much of what the cancer does is respond normally to normal signal and i think the best example of that is uh, we have a very refined homeostatic balance blood vessel formation and um and the need for oxygenation and the having sufficient but not too many blood vessels right right there's a there's a definite balance there okay and when a cancer starts getting large at that point there's probably no blood vessels that have now grown into the cancer because There was sort of no reason for the blood vessels to grow into the cancer. But now the cancer starts getting hypoxic. And like every other tissue that's hypoxic, it starts sending out signals saying, hey, I am hypoxic. I need a better circulation system over here. Things like VEGF. They start, it starts making VEGF because it's hypoxic. Perfectly normal response to hypoxia. It's the, it's the physiologically appropriate response that keeps our tissues in balance with their blood supply probably all the time, right? We're probably having things like small blood clots so that some capillaries are dying and then some tissues getting hypoxic and they start saying, Sending out signals that we're hypoxic and some new, um, some new capillaries start to grow to feed them. Do you see what I'm saying, Richard? So it's not, it's not an, it's not an aberrant response. It's the normal response to the fact that this group of cells has grown without the normal controls. And now it needs more blood vessels.
1: But again, there's two ways, I guess, to look at it is if you look at each cell as an independent entity in the beginning stages of cancer, you know, as the microenvironment of each cell Let's say becomes hypoxic, it would call out, you know, for a blood vessel to go there. But if it's, if each cell is individual and it's like one cell, one vote, and I know I'm anthropomorphizing, but oh well. Is, is this, is this emergent behavior of, hey, you know, angiogenesis come here because of the individual calls of millions of cells in a localized microenvironment? Or is it that again, there's cell to cell communication and now the tumor is acting as one. And the whole tumor itself is monitoring itself and saying, hey, we need blood vessels, put them here. And again, it acts as an independent organism.
2: I don't want to make a broad determination, but I think it's more like the individual cells are each responding to their own signals that, are, that they are getting and their own environment. And through that, it begins to have sort of a a group identity, but I'm more of an individual cell is responding to what they're experiencing. The cells on the outside of the tumor are likely not hypoxic. The cells on the inside probably are. And in fact, as you probably know, a lot of, a lot of tumors get to be necrotic on the center because they don't get a good blood supply and they become so hypoxic that they die and the tumor itself gets to be somewhat hollow. So I I guess I'm, I come down more on the side that there are individual cells that are talking each other, they're talking to the other cells around them, and they're responding to the signals that they're still able to respond to, and ignoring the signals that they've developed the capability to ignore, like the signals which are telling them, don't keep dividing, which... Are almost certainly very clear. They are able to ignore it because they've gone through these genetic and epigenetic changes.
1: Do you, do you know anyone that? I mean, this would be most relevant and easiest for people to glom onto with colorectal cancer. But you know, colorectal, I would think there would be a different, you know, hyperlocalized microbiome around, certainly around polyps versus the rest of the, you know, the colon tissue. I know I spoke to one researcher, Florencia McAllister, that looked at pancreatic tumors. and She said, not only was there a pancreatic microbiome, but the tumors themselves had a bit different one around them. So again, at least in colorectal, I would think that each polyp would, you know, kind of have a different localized microbiome versus the rest of the the tissue. What what are your thoughts there? And how do you think that might influence cancer's behavior (laughs) in action?
2: Yeah, so I think that's quite likely true. One of the things that you're aware of and that, uh, that the world is starting to understand is that the microbiome is much more responsive and much more influential of things that seem like they're quite far away from where the microbiome should be having its influence. But in places like the colon, where we were sure the microbiome was having its influence, since it's mainly nothing but a microbiome, and a microbiome holding device essentially i would expect that you're absolutely right that the microbiome is different around the polyp it's known already it's quite it's it's clear that the microbiome is different if you take a cross-section let's say of the colon, that the organisms that are closer to the wall are different from the organisms that are a little further out or the organisms in the center of the colon. So the microbiome is very responsive to its environment and the polyp is going to have a somewhat different characteristics than normal colon and will likely have that effect on the microbiome. What the details are, I don't know. Other people may have looked into it and there may be some data on it.
1: Yeah, I just wonder, you know, I mean, cause if a, a group of cells turn cancerous, their, you know, their exterior cell membranes would express different, you know, antigens, ligands and stuff like that. And their interaction with their localized microbiome, bacteria, et cetera, would be different. And, you know, they're, they don't, they yeah. don't oxidatively yeah. phosphorylate. They use, you know, they produce lactate. And so there'd be different nutrients for the localized yeah. microbes to yeah. eat and then to give them back. So I just wonder what changes. You know? Yeah.
2: Th- yeah. I think, I think you're absolutely right. You know, you start talking about lactic acid and you start saying, well, there's a pH change. Well, that's going to affect the microbiome. Lactic acid availability of that is going to affect the microbiome. All those things are going to really affect the microbiome. And, um, I think that, that it's, it's, it's just unclear how much of a two-way street it is, right? So I would expect that having to de- develop some characteristics of cancer will affect the microbiome around it. Then the question becomes, how much will the microbiome affect the development of the cancer? Now, one of the things, and this is, again, a a good example from colorectal cancer, is that uh, we know that having inflammatory bowel disease is a, a high risk for colorectal cancer, right? So if you have a lot of inflammation, chronic inflammation, it's often Going to increase the risk of cancer. There's some obvious reasons why that may be. One would be that the inflammation is damaging the tissue and the damaging, damaged tissue is obviously getting very different signals, including getting signals that you do need to grow because this is damaged tissue, right? What do we do with damaged tissue? We have to repair it, which involves cell division, right? If you get hurt, then a whole series of events occurs that is going to have some cell division involved. And so if you have something like inflammatory bowel disease, where you have chronic inflammation chronic damage, chronic cell division to trying to repair the damage. It may be simplistic, but it seems like all that cell division is, is more likely to create a situation where the cell division gets out of control due to the signals and due to the mutations in the epigenetic changes that are associated with cell division. Every time a cell divides, mutations are occurring, right?
1: But what do you think is the signaling in a primary tumor that tells it, all right, it's time to metastasize and you know go to other sites. Do you think there is just like you know, the center of a tumor can become hypoxic or anoxic, which was signal angiogenesis, what do you think of the signals that cause tumors to now spread to other parts of the body?
2: So one of the things that you've probably heard about is what's called the epidermal to mesenchymal transition.
1: Okay, can you explain that?
2: Yeah. So most of our tumors are solid tumors come from tissue that was sort of epidermal or or associated with ectoderm, right? So if you go back to the three germ layers of endoderm, mesoderm, and ectoderm, most of our tissues that get tumors are associated with ectoderm. So those are all the carcinomas, okay? So if you go back, you got sort of in the solid tumors, you got two sort of large groups. The carcinomas, which is the vast majority of human tumors, and the sarcomas, which are bad but uncommon, fortunately. The carcinomas are from ectodermal origin tissue, and the sarcomas are from mesodermal origin tissue. So there's a transition that people call the epidermal to mesenchymal transition. And I may not even be saying epidermal right. It may be ectodermal. So I'm sorry if I, if I don't have that correct. But most people call it EMT. And that's my problem is I'm used to thinking of it as EMT. It's a, it's a transition in which a large number of cells change. It's sort of like there's a switch that's been thrown. And you've gone from a pretty differentiated cell type, even though you're a cancer. And you're dividing out of control to a less differentiated cell type that has less adhesion molecules, has more expression of molecules like metalloproteinases that degrade the extracellular matrix, has more of a tendency to move, and has more of all the things that we associate with metastasis, right? You have to degrade the extracellular matrix to get out of it. You have to have a tendency to move. And generally, you're less well differentiated, at which point it can get into the lymph nodes or into the spleen or into the circulation, and it could start to move. And then what people think happens is it finds a place where it ends up having the right environment, and it will start to grow, but it will often go back again from Mesodermal to ectodermal, or from mesenchymal to epidermal or ectodermal, right? So the the instead of being EMT, it becomes MET, mesodermal to epidermal, and that is is, mes- is
1: mesodermal like a less differentiated form. Uh,
2: yeah, it's more primitive. Mesodermal, or, meso- or, or mesenchyme.
1: This actually sheds light on an interesting principle. It seems like for cancer to start, there's a de-differentiation. Then for it to spread, there's another D differentiation and then there's a differentiation once it gets to its new home. So it seems like yeah. this cycle happens. And there's the conference of, of ability that wasn't there before when things de-differentiate. But then in order to, I guess, make any substantial structure or progress, it has to differentiate. But it goes along all kinds of crazy paths. and
2: Yeah, I think that that's, um, so they're called epithelial to mesenchymal. So yeah, epithelial to mesenchymal transition or EMT. That's what we're talking about. And yeah, and, and a lot of current thinking is that That's how it gets out of circulation, and you probably know that somebody who has a pretty high burden of cancer, there's a lot of circulating cancer cells. They are not hard to find. There's like millions of them. Significant numbers of cancer cells are circulating in the blood. But the reality is very few of them are going to make metastases, right? Just getting into the bloodstream is not sufficient. It has to get out of the bloodstream and find a place to grow. People call it soil, find the right soil. And it seems like it has to go through the reverse transition. This is a real hot area that not a lot is known, Richard, because like once people found that, oh, you know what, circulating tumor cells, there's millions of them in a cancer patient. Why are there not millions of metastases, right? There's got to be something else happening and it's poorly understood. A lot of what people think about is you got to go through the backwards transition back to the epithelial tendency. And that is possibly one of the bottleneck to getting even more metastases
1: well it'd be interesting if you could find out what drives the emt process and block it that might you know slow down cancer growth prevent metastases prevent further spread
2: yeah and that that, believe me there's a lot of people that they they make their career about understanding the the emt transition and and what are the genes involved and how can we block it
1: do you know of anyone that's looked at a uh, a solid tumor and try to you know three D spatially map out the heterogeneity of it in terms of you know like sequencing all the cells and looking at them? You know, radially outwards, how do they change, looking for lineages within the tumor mass, you know, remodeling how it grew from a few cells, you know, can you go yeah. backwards and model? Has anyone looked at that?
2: Yeah, there there is. There's efforts. We have a couple of researchers at Dartmouth who are working on that. There's one way to do it is to try to put tags, genetic tags on on the cells of a tumor and, and then to try to follow the tags in multiple iterations and try to understand which are the the dominant cells that become larger parts. They, they can draw these um, these sort of graphs that almost look like um, evolutionary trees. And, you know, you can see where some of them dead end and some of them get real thick. There is work on that. The heterogeneity is a, an important issue. It shows up quickly in immunohistochemistry. You take a cut through it and you start staining it with different stains. And, and it becomes quite clear that tumors are not Uniform at all, you could get really big differences, what seem like very fundamental biologically differences within the same tumor. You know, things that look like, well, this should really be almost a different tumor, right? And, and common, common types of cancers, breast cancer is a great example, right? Where you have, you have some, some markers of, of one type of cancer. And then in the same cancer, you have other markers of like a different type of breast cancer. Well, did they all come from the same store cell or was there multiple Cancer's growing, and so the the place where that's being looked at most actively is probably breast cancer because it's they're so heterogeneous genius right? When you look at them, they're just they're just full of sort of different types of cancer cells, as well as all the other stromal cells that most cancers have. So a lot of it is looking at it in breast cancer. It's the place where most of the effort to track this lineage stuff.
1: Yeah. I just wonder if there's any, um, you know, if you look at a tumor, let's say it's two centimeters, it's composed of a couple billion cells. Could you trace back again what the tumor would have looked like when it was very small or first beginning? Can you look at which cells came from? which clonal lineages and what the origins were.
2: Yeah, so people are trying to do it experimentally, and they're making some progress. They're they're complex experiments, and a lot of what's going on now, I would say, is tool development, system, developing better and better systems to mark the cells as the tumors are developing so that you can follow the lineages. So that's, you know, like I said, I know I know a, a little bit about it because there's a couple of researchers here who work on it. And so I go to their seminars or the seminars of their students and I, I get to hear, you know, what the, what's going on in that field. It's a developing area. It's a very important question. It's a developing area. And one of the big technology steps forward has been single cell sequencing, which you probably have heard about, but we now have the ability to to sequence most of the genome. It's not that, you know, you can't get all that deep, but you can definitely sequence a lot about a single cell and see a lot of differences between two individual cells. So that enables this to, to start, those sorts of studies can happen, because it's no longer just an average. You know, the average can't tell you about cell-to-cell variability very well. So that's a big technical step forward. And now they're working a lot on these marking systems and ways of identifying, well, who was your ancestor? Which cell did you come from? Pretty much the same way they would track the, the genetic changes in a virus or something, right?
1: Yeah, it makes sense. Speaking of viruses, what about viral viruses that cause cancers, HPV, other ones? Do you know what the mechanisms are that virus is, uh, that yeah. virus is used to create cancer.
2: Well, with a lot of them, they're, they're pretty well known and they basically, they manipulate oncogenes and they manipulate tumor suppressor genes. So the, the first one where we, we got down to the fact that you could express one protein, large T antigen from the SV40 virus, which is actually a monkey virus. You can express large T antigen in a tissue and you will get cancers from that. And the reason you're getting cancers is because the protein is manipulating the the various genes that are getting getting expressed right it's it's stimulating the the growth process it's interfering with tumor suppressor genes and eventually you get a couple of genetic changes and then you got a cancer out um, so there's a fair amount known about specific irally encoded genes that by themselves another one is uh, a gene called e1a Probably not going to remember the virus, right? But if you look up E1A, you'll see it. You can basically overexpress E1A in a normal cell, and some minority of those cells will start doing things like lose its growth inhibition. Like I was saying, you can do these in vitro studies where if they pile up, they've already taken the first step towards becoming cancer. You can create those cancers in in vivo in animals by the expression of of E1A things like that.
1: I know I'm sure it's out of your wheelhouse. I just wonder what um what viral replication and progeny creation looks like in cells that have been turned cancerous by the virus versus uh, normal tissue cells. There's preferential you know, quasi-species of the virus that infect the cancer cells and not the normal tissue or vice versa, but uh, that's probably more of a virologist's purview. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ask.
2: I, I think it's an interesting idea. Um, I have never heard of any data on it, whether the HPV in the normal cells that have been infected with HPV is different than the HPV that's in the cancer cells. That's a really interesting idea, and I've never heard any data, so I really don't know, but it's an interesting idea. No. I wouldn't be surprised if, if somebody were to publish a paper and say, you know, if you sequence the HPV in the cancer cells and you sequence the HPV in the normal cells around the cervix, let's say, that were also infected with HPV, uh, you find that the HPV in the cancer cells has numerous changes. That would not shock me. It would not shock. But it would be interesting to know. And it would probably be a very interesting piece of work if it's true.
1: Well, do you know if there's any research or knowledge on people that have various types of cancers and their susceptibility to certain viral illnesses or bacterial illnesses? You know, if someone has liver cancer, you know, and, and again, they're exposed to the flu or whatever other viruses out there or certain bacterial infections. Are they more likely to get it, less likely? How will their liver react, you know, the cancer part versus the normal tissue part? How will the whole body react, etcetera?
2: Yeah, that's a, that's an interesting question. I think there's some simple answers. And the first simple answer is if you have a heavy burden of cancer, your whole immune system is pretty immunosuppressed just because there's so much cancer and it's all immunosuppressive. So you're much more likely to be susceptible to pathogens. The other sort of simple answer is that when you're being treated, chemotherapy is immune, is immune suppressive and a lot of chemotherapy is killing white blood cells. And so you're also much more susceptible. That's like, that's very well known. That's very clear. And, you know, cancer patients walk around with masks on and their caregivers carry masks and whether COVID or not, you know, I mean, that's just, that's how it is. You go into a place where a lot of people have chemotherapy there's a lot of people with masks on, they are quite immune compromised from the chemo. Now your question, which is a little bit broader is, what about the susceptibility of the cancer cells to an infection by a virus? There's There's been a lot of work, which you may be aware of, to try to find oncolytic viruses or to generate, make oncolytic viruses that would be preferentially able to find and kill cancer cells because they can divide better in a cancer cell than they can in a normal cell. It's an active area of research. So far, hasn't really worked the way people hoped it would, where we'll just give you this virus IV and it'll go all around your body, but the places where it's going to be able to take root and kill cells are going to be the cancer cells, so it's going to help cure you. Hasn't worked out well that way yet, but it's a field. It's active, funded. Um, there's a lot of work on it, but um, it just hasn't... Uh, The same thing could be said of true of certain, uh, there's a lot of work with certain bacteria. Um, One of the ideas was, bacteria that like to grow in hypoxic conditions. Salmonella is the one that most people have worked on. If you inject the salmonella into the bloodstream, it'll find the hypoxic conditions and grow there. So far, it's not really moved into anything particularly useful, but that's the idea. So that sort of gets back to your other question of like, well, would the viruses grow differently in the cancer? And um, they may.
1: Yeah, because again, I would think as uh cells become cancerous again their exterior membranes which are responsible for viral entry you know finding clathrin coated pits or receptors or whatever the expression of, of items on the cell membranes would change and that would make them look different to viral material that's in the body that's you know uh, near them
2: it may be simple like well they have more or less of the viral entry receptor or there may be other things such as cancer cells may not respond with the immune response against a viral infection. So most cells get infected. They express higher levels of class one and they often make type one interferon, alpha or beta. Just throw a virus on any old cell and those two things will generally happen. <laughs> Cancer cells, no, nah, they may not happen, right? They may have also, you know, they've, they, may have, they may have lost some of their capabilities of responding in a normal way to an infection And so in that way, the infection can preferentially grow where, for instance, the cells are not making type 1 interferon when they see the virus. Type 1 interferon shuts down the cell cycle, calls in immune cells. Those are things that probably are not in support of the cancer, right? So the cancer may have already evolved them away.
1: It's odd. I mean, so yeah, this is a generalized question, but to what do you attribute the success of a cancer? Success means that tumor grows, metastases grow, you know. Unfortunately, the host at some point will die, but the cancer, at least for the meantime, appears to be quote-unquote successful. What are some of the hallmarks that drive the success of cancer, do you believe?
2: Well, un- uncontrolled cell division. So um, uh, the, the best place to look at that stuff is are, are the papers, the classic papers by uh, Hanahan and Weinberg on the hallmarks of cancer. Have you ever seen those papers?
1: Yeah, I heard it was a paper from 2000. I looked at it briefly uh, a year or two ago, but I'll have to revisit it. But that was the famous paper, I guess, in 2000, the Hallmarks of Cancer, right?
2: Yeah, but I think there was another one that was written around 2010. And um, I think that they're probably trying to do them every 10 years. And and basically, one of the things that they they brought in in a much heavier way in the 2010 was the involvement of the immune system. So I was interested in that. But they, they really tell you these are the changes that are associated with cancer. These are the things that they'll do, right? They're, they're ignoring signals that to not divide. They generally are, they're often generating their own, their own dividing signals with like activated signaling systems. Let's say KRAS is active or PI3 kinase is active because of mutation. Well, those are, those are things that transmit a signal to say you should divide. So they're just doing it on their own, right? So those are sort of classic things. Inflammation is associated with it. I don't really off the top of my head. Genomic instability. The genomes are unstable. They don't repair well. They're often quite aneuploid. And those are all things that kind of make the cancer get more and more serious, moving away from benign into metastatic. So I think that that's a good place to to look because they go through each of them and they discuss the biology. So I Mm -hmm. I would look for the second version of that from okay it's uh, it's very fundamental stuff at this point
1: just a couple more questions you know because we're running out of time do you know of any research that looks at the heterogeneity of primary tumors versus metastases and characterizes the differences in it you know if there's a cancer that has a primary and let's say three metastases has anyone gone and done the sequencing on all of them even if it has to be post-mortem and look for the changes in heterogeneity what are the predominant Um, mutations in all the four sites, let's say, how do they differ?
2: Yeah, uh, there have been those things. And off the top of my head, I couldn't point you to to a uh, paper. But my bet is if you look under metastatic review articles, you'll still start pointing you to the papers. And I think that there are... Certain changes that are are somewhat repetitive that will often occur, and I don't off the top of my head know what are the ones to look for, but those sorts of studies have been done, and I think they're continuing to be done using more and more sophisticated technology. Probably they were done originally with sort of whole genome sequencing from the whole tumor or maybe transcriptome. And now they might be getting done with single cell sequencing. So we're gonna have a whole new layer of data and complexity to try to understand what's going on. There are differences for sure that are showing up in the metastatic tumors as compared to the primaries.
1: Yeah, I looked on PubMed and there was like 4.2 million papers on cancer. So I I assumed you knew them all and were, we're yeah. familiar at the, at the tip of your tongue
2: <laughs> no but what i'm good at is saying well what sort of review could help me learn about it and point me to the right papers yeah
1: yeah so what um what are some of the things that you have on your radar that you're you're thinking may maybe figured out about cancer in the next few years you know not mm-hmm. long long term but short
2: term one of one of the, you know, one of the things that is it's one of my pet Ideas. So if you talk to a lot of immunologists, they kind of think that, well, it's cancers are immunosuppressive. We know that that's like pretty uniform. They vary in their immunosuppressive tendencies and what mechanisms they evolve, but they're, they're pretty immunosuppressive. And I think that a lot of what's happening is that cancers act like sterile wounds, which are immunosuppressive. So if you think about a wound, there's been tissue damage, blood vessels have been broken, blood is clotted, and you need to have some cell division and you need to call in certain types of cells. You need to call in fibroblasts. So fibroblasts are well associated with cancer. You need to call in white blood cells. They're associated with cancer. But what you don't need is a lot of immune effector cells whose job is killing cells, right? So a lot of what the immune cells do is they kill things. And so now you get into the point like, oh, cancers, let's say, have these M2 macrophages, they call them, or myeloid-derived suppressor cell. Isn't that interesting? But my perspective is a sterile wound has M2-type macrophages because You have dead and dying cells. The macrophages need to clean up the debris. You need things like new blood vessels. The macrophages are supportive of new blood vessel growth. You need these fibroblasts that need to support tissue repair and tissue growth. And so a lot of those things are immunosuppressive, right? You're making VEGF in a wound. You're hypoxic in a wound. So they, to me, they, it looks like a, a, a sterile wound. And that's sort of the idea that when I, when I take an extra an hour and I want to think or work on something, that's the idea I keep working on. But I haven't so far written what I hope to be a review that pulls this together. But what you don't want is a bunch of immune effector cells. Now my perspective is, And the reason why I think about it is because I treat cancer by making it look like it's no longer sterile, right? I inject immunostimulatory reagents into the cancer so that rather than being immunosuppressed, it's immunostimulated, most of what I put in are either directly taken from a pathogen or they mimic and activate receptors that are recognizing pathogens because that's what turns on the immune system. So basically, I think about it like, I'm making that tumor look like it's no longer sterile. The the final thought is, the reason why this may work is that evolutionarily, if you have a sterile wound, your evolutionary priority is to repair the wound. If you have an infected wound, your evolutionary priority is to kill the infection, right? Because the infection is likely to kill the host, whereas the wound may or may not be that damaging, to the host overall
1: well very good steve thank you for coming and i appreciate it and uh you know we come right to the end but you know all your information has been really great so thanks for coming back
0: it's a pleasure richard if you like this podcast please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on itunes you've been listening to the finding genius podcast with richard jacobs